0: Psalm three, save me, O my God. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on all your people. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for all that you have done for your people. We thank you that as verse 8 tells us, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. And Lord, we look to you once again this morning for salvation. Lord, all of our hope is in you. And Lord, we know that out of your goodness, as we turn to you in faith and seek our salvation in you, you pour out your blessings upon us. So, Lord, this morning, as your people gather together to worship you, we do exactly that. We give you worship. We praise you. We thank you for your goodness toward us. Lord, we pray that this morning as we study Psalm 3 together, that we would be reminded of your goodness as our God. That even in times of trial or great crisis, that you're there, that you're with us, that you're for us. And that ultimately you deliver us. Lord, we also pray for any who have joined us today who have never put their faith in you, Lord. They've never turned to you for salvation. Lord, today would you please give them faith. Would you please draw them to yourself, Holy Spirit, so that they might enjoy life in your name. So that they might walk in and enjoy the blessings that belong to those who are yours. So, God, teach us now, instruct us, minister to us in your holy word, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and grab a seat? Now, there's an expression that basically goes that there is no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. Right? You've probably heard that expression. And the idea is that when people are at war, and particularly in a foxhole where you've got, you know, machine gun fire, going overhead and rockets exploding and grenades coming in your direction, that even the staunchest atheists, those who are most hardened to God and his existence, find themselves crying out to God or to a higher power, seeking salvation and deliverance from the uh, violence and the threats that are all around them. And that's all fine and well, of course. But those kinds of prayers, the prayers of somebody who's not a follower of Christ, Uh, just in a moment of crisis, are, are generally marked by desperation and insecurity. Those are prayers that are just kind of shot up to the heavens and, hey, I doubt you're even there, but if you are, please help me. And that's a totally different kind of prayer than the sort of prayers that come out of the godly when they find themselves in a great crisis, when they find themselves facing imminent harm. For those of us who know the Lord, we are told in the scriptures to pray without ceasing. We're also told that we should cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for us. And so as Christians, when we find ourselves in crisis, prayer becomes a natural and reflexive response. We are a people who, when, again, we enter into crisis, these aren't just cries of desperation. These are cries that are flowing out of confidence that God is with us and that he will see us through. Before us today in Psalm chapter 3, we have a prayer from David, the great king of Israel. And this prayer is offered to the Lord in that kind of a period in his life. It's offered to the Lord in a time of intense crisis. The title of today's sermon is A Prayer for Those in Crisis. And we're going to again study David's prayer in this time of crisis. And we're going to learn about what that looks like to offer prayer to the Lord in moments of crisis In our lives. Now, the superscription or sort of the the title that you see there before verse 1 gives us the context for Psalm chapter 3. It says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, this moment in David's life was one of the greatest crises of his life. Here he is as an established, successful, powerful monarch in Israel. And he's been ruling over a kingdom that has prospered and has been strong. And he's withstood all of his external foes, starting with the great giant Goliath and on down the line. And yet now at this later point in his life, he has one of his very own sons, his son Absalom, rise up against his own father in an attempted coup to overthrow David and take the throne for himself. And this conspiracy grows, and David actually has to, with a few trusted friends and soldiers, he actually has to flee the holy city of Jerusalem. He has to cross over the Kidron Valley. He ascends the Mount of Olives, and he flees off into the distance. And as he does, he recognizes that his life is in utter peril. The conspiracy is massive. There are so many people, even some of his trusted friends and advisors have gone to Absalom's side, and he knows that his life is literally on the line here. And again, this is his own son, so you've got to add into just the fear of it all, the great distress that he must feel as a father, knowing that his own child is seeking the end of his life. And so it's in this kind of a moment, as David is fleeing for his own life, that David offers the prayer of Psalm 3 and comes before the Lord and cries out to God for help. There are parallels between Psalm 3 and this story, which you can find in 2 Samuel. Um, I'll give you a couple of these parallels. In verse 1 of Psalm 3, um, we see there that many people are literally rising up against David. That's what he says in verse 3. In 2 Samuel fifteen twelve, we read this, And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, He sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So we see that parallel. Verse 1, he's saying, many are my foes. These these people are rising against me. And in Samuel, we read that this conspiracy kept growing. In verse 2 of this psalm, David's enemies were saying that God had forsaken him. That God had reban- abandoned him, that God had rejected King David. And again, we see this uh, in the, the words of Shimei in Second Samuel 16. We read in verse 7, And Shimei said, as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Shimei, as he curses David, we're going to read more about that in a few minutes. But as he curses David and his men, he's just saying, look, this is God's doing. God is turning your own evil on your own head. God has rejected you and he's put Absalom in your place. In verse 3, David's crying out to the Lord to lift his head again. And we're going to see this a little bit more later too. That as David fled from Jerusalem uh, his head was literally covered in shame as he crossed over the Mount of Olives, and he needs God to lift his head once again. In verse 5 of Psalm 3, David experienced danger and confidence in the night. We see that in Second Samuel. In verse 6, David was heavily outnumbered. And then finally, in verses 7 and 8, David eventually experiences great victory and deliverance. And so there's no good reason to doubt that this was a prayer of David at the time of Absalom's treason and was composed either right then or maybe at a later date as he reflected back on that experience, that traumatic moment in his life. Psalm 2, much like Psalm, or Psalm 3 rather, uh, much like Psalm 2 has four parts. And so we're going to break this this Psalm into four different sections. But the first one in verses 1 and 2, What we find here is that David states the crisis before the Lord. So in verses 1 and 2, David is just going to say, this is what's going on. He's going to state the crisis that he's facing in the presence of the Lord in prayer. He says again, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. And so what is the crisis that David faces? He says that his foes are many. And these foes have actually risen up against him. Again, this coup attempt against King David. And he says that they're taunting him. And they're speaking evil of him. They're saying, look, there's no salvation for him in God. David always puts himself out. there as this man of God that he has this great relationship with the Lord. Not true. God has rejected him. There's no salvation for him in God. Now, that that statement there, that's really the central theological issue in Psalm 3. The issue at stake in Psalm 3 is, will God, in fact, deliver and rescue King David? Or are these conspirators right? Has God actually rejected and forsaken his king that he's established in Israel? Now, notice that right up front at the start of this prayer, David states the crisis before the Lord, right? He's just gets into prayer, and he says, Lord, here's what's happening. This is what's going on in my life. And this is the starting point for our prayers in times of crisis. It's identifying the crisis. Lord, I've been laid off. Lord, I've gotten this terrible diagnosis from the doctor. Lord, I'm being wrongfully terminated at my job. Lord, I'm being slandered by that person. Lord, there's this bully at school. Lord, there's a pandemic raging right now. Now, obviously, the more acute or the more pressing the crisis is, the more appropriate it is to rush right into this step. Just telling the Lord, this is what's going on. And so I'm really grateful for this psalm. Because when you're in a moment of crisis, again, especially an acute moment of crisis, oftentimes there's not, there's not time for some flowery prayer this elongated section in your prayer life of thanksgiving and adoration of who the Lord is. I mean, you just got to get right down to business. Lord, this is what's going on right now, and I need you, Lord. And so I'm grateful for this. You know, obviously, the Lord's Prayer is our model for prayer. And in that prayer, it begins with a time of adoring the Lord and honoring the Lord. and, and, And finally, as Jesus is working through the Lord's Prayer, he gets to our needs, our daily needs. And that is our model prayer. But again, I'm just grateful for prayers like this in the scripture that teach us that there are these moments where God doesn't actually care about all the formality. He just knows you're in need and he wants us to call on him and he invites us to call on him. I think of Nehemiah in the second chapter of Nehemiah. Remember, he was the the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes, which is a really important job, but also could be risky if the king was in a bad mood and you did the wrong thing. You could just get killed. And so Nehemiah is the cupbearer and he came in one morning to work and he was sad and he tried to cover it. He tried to hide it, but he was just emotionally distraught. The king looked at him and said, what's going on? Why are you so sad? And he said, well, my, my homeland is, is in shambles. The city of Jerusalem, I've, I've heard a report, it's all been destroyed. And I'm sad about this. And the king says, well, what do you want me to do? <laughs> and the scripture's awesome here. It just says, it says that he, he prayed to the God of heaven, and then he said to the king, and he gives his response there. And you can, you can picture Nehemiah in that moment like, oh, I, I, this could be dangerous. This could be risky. Lord, help me. And then he just responds to the king in that moment. Now, I'm really grateful that we have this psalm for that reason, but also just as a reminder that when crisis hits, our first and greatest response should be prayer. This is what David does. He goes into a moment of prayer here, and we, we need to perhaps be convicted by this this morning because sometimes when crisis hits our lives, if you're like me and you're a little bit of a control freak, step one is how can I manage the situation? How can I fix this? How can I, how can I sort all of this out and control the outcome of this situation? And then only after all of our efforts fail do we say, well, maybe I'll try prayer. Maybe I'll get God involved in this situation. And that was just not the heart of David. And I'll tell you what, if there was ever a time in David's life where he could have been justified for saying, you know what, Lord, sorry, I forgot to pray. I was a little slammed there. It would be when he's fleeing from from his son and really running for his life in the middle of the night. And yet he was such a man of God. And he was a man who really believed that the Lord is the one who controlled his destiny to the extent that even as he's fleeing for his life, He takes time to quiet his soul. He takes time to come before the Lord and say, God, I need you and I need you to intervene. So the first thing David does, again, is David states the crisis before the Lord. But now in verses three and four, David does something else deeply significant. David recalls who God is. He recalls to his mind, God is. Look at verse three. Oh, I'm in Psalm 23, thanks to the wind. Let me get back. In verse three David says, "But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. So notice David here, he's now recalling the Lord and, and specifically he's, he's recalling that the Lord, is three different things to him. The first thing is he's recalling that God is his protector. That's what he says in verse 3. He says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. David is recalling the fact that God is able to protect him from the enemy's blows. He pictures God here as a shield in battle. right? And when you think about a shield, it can extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy. It could be used to block A blow from a sword, I mean a shield is your defense when you're in a battle in the ancient world. And what's so fascinating about the language here is that David does not just say, you're a shield in front of me, Lord. He says that the Lord is actually a shield about him. The vision here is of a shield that almost covers his entire body. And this is very important if you look at verse 6, because in verse 6, his enemies have set themselves against him all around. David understands that these conspirators are coming at him from every different angle and he says, but that's okay because I have a protector in the Lord and he is like a shield that surrounds me, protects me on every side from every scheme and device of the enemy. And family, let me remind you this morning that we too have a protector from the enemy's blows, that our enemy who is so vigilant And who wants to destroy us and wants to attack us from every different angle and look at your vulnerabilities and look at your weak spots and say, I can can exploit that. I can get in there. I can destroy. The Lord is your shield. He's all around you. He's our protector. And we must just turn to him. Not only does David see the Lord as his protector, but next look, he sees him as his glory. He says, you are my glory and the lifter of my head. As I mentioned, David's head was covered in shame when he was at the Mount of Olives after he had crossed the Kidron Valley. We read this in 2 Samuel 15, 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. So David, as he's fleeing, he's he's fleeing in shame. And embarrassment, and fear, and anxiety. And those who are with him feel the same way. They've got their heads covered. They're bawling their eyes out. But here as David steadies his soul in the presence of the Lord, he sees God as the one who will, in fact, bring him to a place of honor once again. That God is the one who will ultimately lift his head back into a place of honor and glory. David's honor and glory was not the result of David's own effort. David didn't think, I can fix this. I'll figure this all out. I've defeated every other enemy of mine. I'm going to defeat this this threat as well. That wasn't the way he saw it. He saw the Lord as his glory and the Lord as the lifter of his head. So his honor and glory was not the result of his own effort. It never was. It was the result of God's grace and God's power in David's life. Finally, David sees the Lord as his ever present help. I love this. He says, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. God was not too busy for David. God was not hard to get a hold of. David didn't believe that. He believed that God was accessible. Sometimes people, even the people that we need the most are difficult to get a hold of or they're busy or they never text you back. I'm kind of guilty of that one. I'm a bad text responder. I don't know if you can relate to that, but people text me and I'll just forget and I don't get back to them. But for David, he looked at the Lord as this ever present help, not just a help at certain moments, not just a deliverer when it was convenient for the Lord. I called to the Lord. I cried out to the Lord, David says, and he answered me. That was David's experience. When he's in this moment of crisis, why does he pray? He prays because he knows God listens to him. And he knows that because he's God's son, that God will answer his prayers and respond to them. He says that the Lord's going to answer him from his holy hill. This is just a reference to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And of course, during the time of David, um, this was the place where God's presence dwelt in a unique way, was there at the Temple Mount. And so David is saying, the Lord is present there and he's listening to me and he's going to respond to me. Today, we might just say that the Lord is going to answer us from his heavenly throne. So David here reassured his heart by recalling who God is in this time of crisis. We need to do the same. If you are a Christian here this morning, then God is just as much your protector, your glory, and your ever-present help in times of need. The third thing we see now in verses 5 and 6 is we see that David fully trusts in God. He says in verse 5, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Being a person who does struggle to sleep some nights, I find it remarkable that David was able to get a night's sleep While he's on the run from Absalom. It's just incredible. But as he's fleeing, he's actually able to lay his head down at night. He's actually able to get some rest in that terrible, dire situation. Why was he able to do that? The answer is that he trusted in the Lord. He knew that at the end of the day, his fate was in God's hands. He knew that he wasn't going to die one second before the Lord allowed it. He didn't let fear overwhelm him. I'm reminded of Isaiah 26.3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. For those of us who trust in the Lord, there's a peace that comes from the Lord. And that peace sustains us even in these moments of crisis in our lives. And it's a peace that actually confounds the world. They look at that and go, now how can you have peace when all of these things are happening to you? It's startling to see David with so much peace. It sort of reminds me of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember when Jesus in Mark chapter four is uh, on the boat and he's crossing the Sea of Galilee with the disciples and Jesus takes a nap and he's sleeping in the boat and all of a sudden this storm begins to rage and it's tossing and it's threatening and it's terrifying to these seasoned fishermen. But the guy who was a carpenter and didn't spend a lot of times on boats was totally fine with it. So Jesus is sleeping and all the seasoned fishermen start freaking out and they go and they wake Jesus up and they basically say, don't you even care about us? Right? Isn't that descriptive of the way we pray sometimes when things are going wrong? Don't you even care about me, Lord? And Jesus, of course, looks at them. He sees what's going on. and So he rebukes the storm. And he says to his disciples, this is Mark 440, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So notice what the issue there is. The the fear is massive in the disciples because they have no faith. That's Jesus' way of dissecting what's going on in the hearts of the disciples. They're full of fear because they're lacking faith. David here is able to sleep because he's trusting in the Lord. David fully trusts in the Lord, which is why he can say, actually, in verse 6, I will not be afraid. See, listen, faith and fear are diametrically opposed to each other. Faith drives out fear like light drives out darkness. That's the way that it works. And so when you think about it, you've got faith and you've got fear. And to the degree that our faith is strengthened in the Lord, Lord, our fears actually decrease. If we're looking at our lives and we're saying, I am being dominated by fear, there's a deflation in the department of faith. We need to strengthen our faith in the Lord. These two things work against each other. They're diametrically opposed to each other. And so the godly are continually growing in faith throughout their lives. And the more that we grow in our faith, the less that the threats of this life and this world can sort of rock the boat, if you will. And so David here, because he's recalled who the Lord is and because he fully trusts in the Lord he looks out at the many thousands of foes out there, and he says, I will not be afraid. It's not going to happen. God's delivered me too many times in the past. In fact, David, you'll notice that he's, he's reflecting on that night of sleep, and he's thinking to himself even there that God sustained me through the night. These enemies didn't overcome my camp in the middle of the night, and I gave him, again, just stronger faith to continue moving forward. Now, at first, the many rising up against him were this cause of great alarm for King David. But now, as we get to verses 5 and 6, they instill no fear in him. And so I ask you, what is it that changed? What is it that changed? Did, Did the enemies go away? No, they're still there. What changed for David in that moment, and even the tone of this psalm, what changed was his perspective that we see as David uh, takes his eyes here in verses 3 through 6 off of the problems of verses 1 and 2, and he puts his eyes and thus his heart on the Lord in verses 3 through 6. The whole tone of the psalm changes. And David's faith is strengthened here. And friends, this is what we have to do constantly in our lives, especially in moments of crisis. That when the crisis hits, yes, we, we acknowledge it, we identify it, we state the crisis before the Lord. But our very next step is I'm not going to sit here and just be consumed by this. I've got to go back to what I know about the Lord and who he is and strengthen my soul and strengthen my faith. And as we do that again, the faith is being strengthened and the fear is diminishing. So David, in this wonderful psalm, he brings the crisis before the Lord. He recalls who God is and he places his complete trust or confidence in him. And now finally, we get to the fourth movement here in verse 7. David asks God to deliver him. In this verse, he finally is saying, now Lord, based on who you are, I'm asking you to save me, to rescue me. Here's the phrasing of it. He says, arise, O Lord. He kind of got this picture of the Lord seated on his throne and he's saying, rise up, Lord, in my defense. And as we've talked about, these, these psalms are Hebrew poetry and there's some poetical devices going on here. Notice again in verse one, it was many are rising against me. And now in verse seven, he says, so Lord, rise up against those who are rising up against me. Look at the next expression, save me, O my God from those who say that God won't save him, back in verse 2. So he's playing off of the threat against him now in his prayer for deliverance. So he's asking God, would you please save me from these people who say, you've rejected me? These people who say that you're not my God, that you won't save me, or perhaps can't. Lord, would you save me? For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth. Of the wicked. Now, to strike a person on the cheek was a gross insult. It still is today. I mean, think about that act. Like if, if you actually slap somebody in the face, that's a serious insult, right? And so David here is saying that God is the one who will strike his enemies on the cheek. David's enemies had insulted him and ridiculed him. Listen again to their mocking taunt in verse 2. There is no salvation for him in God. Or consider this episode in 2 Samuel 16. As David and his men are fleeing in shame. This is what I referenced earlier with uh, Shimei and this cursing or this mocking of David as he's fleeing. We read, When King David came to Behurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gerah. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of of blood. So in in the story there, Shimei is on a hillside and David and his soldiers are walking in shame and Shimei starts mocking and insulting and taunting and actually throwing rocks down at them. And uh, this insulting got under the skin of one of David's mighty warriors. And we actually read in the next verse, it says, then Abishai, the son of Zariah said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my Lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. That's awesome, huh? That's awesome. What's even more awesome though is David said no. David could have just had Shimei killed right there. Um, Abishai could have lopped his head off like that. But David said no. And David showed mercy. David realized that ultimately, if God, if if David was going to survive this and David was going to be delivered, it was actually going to come from the Lord. And so he tells Abishai, stand down in this moment. So David here in this prayer is not calling on Abishai or his other mighty men to deliver him. David is calling on the Lord to return these insults back on people like Shimei and to neutralize their threats. That's what's meant by break the teeth of the wicked. It means basically to render them speechless and harmless. Some translations talk about it it meaning uh, pulling or removing the things out of the wicked. So picture a fierce lion with these sharp fangs, which is such a threat to you. But if you defanged it, or think of a snake, if you defanged it, all of a sudden it's harmless to you. I guess the lion would still be not harmless. That's a big, strong animal. The snake analogy is a little bit better. You take the fangs out, it's harmless and it can't hurt you anymore. And so David here is saying of the Lord that the Lord is going to defang the enemies or break their teeth so that they can no longer destroy him. And consume him. This is so cool. David looks to the Lord to deliver him from his enemies. And this is crazy because these are earthly enemies. There is a physical response here. But David still knows that at the end of the day, the battle belongs to the Lord. At the end of the day, my troops will not carry the day if God is not with us. So David recognizes that his salvation would be the result of God's agency in action, not his own. And when you read the story, God did take care of Absalom. This is one of the uh, craziest stories in the Old Testament. Well, I guess not the craziest. I'm exaggerating. I need to be careful. But it's an it's a interesting story. I'll say it that way. Because Absalom starts fleeing in battle and he's riding on his animal and he actually rides through a thick part of the forest and his head gets stuck in a tree and he's hanging there and dangling in the tree until finally the soldiers are able to catch up and then they dispatch him. I mean, that's like a total act of God. He's riding. And of course, back in this time, these were very seasoned riders. This was somebody who knew what he was doing and his head gets stuck in a tree and he's dangling there and the horse takes off. It's crazy. When I was a kid, my dad, he used to disciple us very, very effectively. And one of the things he would do is he would play charades with us. And so one night he sits me and my brother and sister down in the living room, and my dad is acting out all these Bible stories, and we have to guess them. And so in the the doorway between the living room and the kitchen, we had a pull-up bar hanging there. And so my dad acts like he's riding on a horse, and he comes over, and he goes to act like He gets hit and clipped by the thing, which is the tree taking Absalom's head off. And so he does it really, really fast. And he goes and acts like he hits it and flies back. And he broke his foot because he landed wrong in there. And he had to try to totally play it off. Like it didn't hurt that bad because dad has to be big and strong. But this is what actually happened is again, Absalom is riding through and he does get suspended by his neck in this tree. And then finally, David's men come upon him and kill him. And so again, even in the way that Absalom is overthrown, you can see it as an act of God. God could have allowed him to just be shot with an arrow or stabbed with a sword in battle. But the Lord grabbed him and snatched this little conspirator and dangled him in a tree as a way of saying, nobody is going to take out my king. And so David finishes this psalm where really all of our prayers should, should end. He finishes the psalm by giving glory to the Lord alone and by pronouncing a blessing on all of God's people. He says here, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And family, this is as clear of a declaration of the way that salvation works as you're going to get in the Bible. Salvation is not something that David could bring about in his own story here. And for us as Christians, it is not something that we can bring about on our own. The doctrine of salvation in the Bible is a doctrine of God saving his people. God, uh, according to the scriptures, he chose us. God sent his own son to die for us and to rise again for us. God sent his spirit to convict us of our sins and draw us to himself. And God is the one that will sustain us until that final day. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And for all of us who belong to the Lord, we receive God's blessing. David here pronounces this blessing upon the people of God. Here in this final verse is the key to this text. And again, the key to the entire gospel message. If you belong to God's people by looking to the Lord alone for salvation, then God's blessings will be on you forever. There's nothing that can remove the blessings of Almighty God from your life. Now notice, and this is so important as we close, that what's going on here in Psalm 3 is not just some generic belief in God or some generic belief in a higher power. David trusted in a very specific God. If you have the ESV translation, you'll notice that the word LORD is in all caps throughout Psalm 3. And whenever you see LORD in all caps in the Old Testament, the reason why it's translated with all caps is because it is translating the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, which is God's covenant name. When Moses asked the Lord all the way back in Exodus 3, who are you or what is your name? God said, I am. He revealed himself as Yahweh. And so, This is God's covenant name. David here is calling upon not just some generic God out there or some higher being. David is calling on the God of Israel, the God who had delivered Israel from Pharaoh and the God who had promised to bless his people as they sought salvation in him alone. For those of us who are on this side of the cross, we have so much more revelation than David ever had about exactly who the Lord is. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ is God incarnate, that 2,000 years ago, the Lord came and dwelt among us. And that ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross as the ultimate sacrifice and the only sacrifice that could completely remove our sins forever and give us the righteousness that we would need to be able to be in right standing with our God. And spend eternity with him. And so the way to belong to the Lord and experience his salvation. And receive his blessings. Is by coming to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for all of us who put our faith and our trust in Jesus. We can identify with verse 8. We can say gladly this morning that salvation belongs to the Lord. And we can include ourselves in this blessing that belongs to the people of God. So I ask you now, as we close, what do you do when crisis hits? What is your response when crisis hits your life? Is it to freak out? Is it to try to manage, control, fix it all on your own? Or is your first and greatest response to say, let me stop and bring this before the Lord? David stated the crisis before the Lord. David recalled to mind who God is. David renewed his trust in the Lord. And finally, David said, God, save me. Deliver me from this great hour of trial. This, of course, isn't all we do. I'm not suggesting that we pray and then just sit back and say, okay, I have no more responsibilities. That's not even what David did. If you read the story in 2 Samuel, David prayed and he planned. David prayed to the Lord to deliver him and he took prudential or wise steps to try to secure his own deliverance. But even those steps, David understood to be guided by God's grace. So yes, we pray and we plan, but God forbid that we pass over this most important step of prayer. After all, family, we have an all-powerful advocate. We have an ever-present help in our times of need. Why then would we ever be so foolish as to not ask him to intervene? Let's pray together. God, we thank you this morning for who you are to us. That you are our savior, that you are our deliverer, that you are our protector, that you are our glory and the lifter of our heads. Lord, we know that in this life, we do face many trials. We face many crises and many moments that are capable of causing great anxiety and great fear in our hearts. And yet, Lord, we're reminded this morning of who you are and that even through the great struggles and trials of this life, even through the moments where perhaps we are enduring the ridicule and the mockery of the world, Lord, we know that, One day in Christ, you will lift all of our heads. That we will share in eternal glory with him. And that because we belong to him and because we are your children, that we are honored. Lord, I pray that you would help us to continue to turn to you with faith. We pray that as we think upon and meditate on your word day and night, like we learned about in Psalm 1 that these constant reminders of who you are would strengthen our own souls and strengthen our own faith. And that, Lord, we would be a people, much like David, who could be at peace even when the world was chaotic around him. That we could lay our heads on our pillows at night and get a decent night of sleep, recognizing that you are the one who is watching over your people. And, Lord, I pray that the fruit of this peace and of this uh, trust in you would not only be our own health and well-being, but would also be us setting a bright example to the world around us of what it might look like to actually be in relationship with the Lord. That people who are filled with anxiety and crippling fear would be able to look at us in the church and see that Jesus offers us his peace. And it's a peace that surpasses all human understanding. And Lord, I pray through this that you would draw many to yourself through your church. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.